Hey, I'm Craig Finn. This is my podcast. I call it That's How I Remember It. In each episode, I speak to one artistic guest about the relationship between their memory and creativity and how it affects the stories they tell the world as well as the stories they tell themselves. My guest on this episode is Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, critic, and more. He's published two volumes of poetry as well as three nonfiction books. The first book of Hanif's that I read in full was 2019's Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes on a Tribe Called Quest, about the seminal hip-hop group. That was predated by his essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, from 2017. And in 2021, he released the fantastic A Little Devil in America, which we talked a lot about here. Hanif is an incredible writer of both poetry and criticism. Everything he creates is insightful and emotional. I'm not the only one who thinks so. His books have all garnered critical raves and prestigious nominations and awards. In 2021, he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, which is a massive honor, well-deserved. I was thrilled to have Hanif here on That's How I Remember It, and he did not disappoint. Check it out. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with Thanks for joining me. I want to start how I start all of them. Do you think you have a good memory? I think I have a great memory. I have uh, an alarmingly good memory, particularly a long-term memory. What What do you think you remember better than other people? So one wild thing about me is that I can, without looking, name where most any NBA player went to college. Now it's a little shakier in the current NBA, but still I would say like 80%. But back, if we were to go like one era before this, I would get 100%. And it's because, um, in the era before that, 100%. It's because when I was young, I would just study the back of basketball cards. I'm very good at the, the retaining of information broadly. But statistics or facts, you know, so much of my music knowledge is stuff that I've just like retained due to, you know, like I can tell you who played bass on pet sounds, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I have, I have a pretty good memory. Short-term memory is fine, not as great. Does it extend to like, uh, is is record stuff part of it? Like, you know, pressings and all that? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I just, I kind of grew up in a household where people talked a lot about music and people knew a lot about music. Mm-hmm. And because I was the youngest of four in a house where not only my older siblings, but also my parents were kind of just funneling a lot of information, not not even necessarily to me directly, but I was in the orbit of that information. And I just held on to it because it was, you know, it was kind of um, felt like a, a gift. How, how do you think this, your memory, your skill is, um, uh, with memory shows up in your in your work? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just finished my newest book. It's not coming out until next year. But I finished it. I finished it actually last year and then just finished the final edits on it. And it is a book about Ohio and basketball and who gets to make it out of a place and why. And I found myself, I, when I write, I, I break off research into two kind of branches. I think about more literal research, more tactile research, researching facts and numbers and figures. And then there's what I call emotional research, where I kind of try to fact check my own memory against what the reality was. Or even fact check my own memory about against how that memory has evolved for me. And I found myself just having for the first time, because it's it's a book that is, you know, touching on things I actually lived through, you know, high school basketball and all this, 
I found myself just kind of charting out a really clear path without even looking of these experiences. And it's because I think um, my memory best and most effectively works with a understanding of memory as attached to feeling and sound in sense it's sensory right in in that kind of stuff doesn't really fade so even if i don't remember say the date or month that my high school basketball team played in a game i'll remember the final score i'll remember exactly we're playing out because i'll remember things like the smell of the gym we were in or the color of the jerseys of the opposing team so these kind of things kind of stitch together in my work and that's why I think my work is tied so much to emotional memory and not always to this kind of fact-based, not, not, I mean, it's all, you know, fact-based, whatever, but this kind of um, statistics-based memory. It, it smell, is that, is that, is that uh, one of the senses that you most rely on? Is that, is that a thing or is, is it others? No, I think, I think smell and sound, unsurprisingly sound, but smell and sound are, are the two, you know, like I still remember uh, the the first song that I recall being moved by is Nina Simone's version of Pirate Jenny. And honestly, the only reason I feel like I remember that is because I remember the smell of the carpet in my childhood, my first childhood home. And I remember sitting on the carpet. It was this thick, really gross red carpet. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting on the carpet, I was maybe six or seven, and playing in the, the kind of thick, you know, knitting of the carpet while the Nina Simone song was playing. And I just remember my hands smelling like that carpet. Yeah. Yeah. It was like that kind of carpet where you had to vacuum it a lot. And so right. it always kind of smelled like the aftermath of a vacuum cleaner. Right. What, were, were there, so there were a lot of records around your home. Oh yeah. Yeah. My parents had separate record collections in a way, I think they, um, and my brother, and sister had huge cassette tape collections. This was kind of like in the era, 90s era, where like the cassette was giving way to CDs. But by that time, my brother had just like two massive trunks of cassette tapes. And when you collect to that degree, it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not transferring over to this new technology. And so um, records and a ton of cassettes. I mean, just like, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of cassette tapes. Did you eventually start with cds i mean did do you remember yeah. what your like first cd was yeah so i my first things that i bought were cassettes and the first cassette i bought was mariah carey's music box and i bought it because it was on sale she had um you know it was one of those things where it was i bought it in 93 or maybe 94 and so the hits from the album had kind of risen to the top of the charts and it was just on sale for 6.99 i think at singing dog records here in columbus it used to be on campus uh, and it is now, a, I don't know, like a sandwich spot or something. But when I made the shift to CDs, it was all burning CDs. It was in the era of like, you could burn a cassette to a CD or you could burn a CD to CD right before the peer, peer-to-peer sharing networks began. And then you could mm-hmm. just kind of really go wild. And I have, I'm actually looking at them right now. I have my old CD books still with me. And I uh, earlier this year, I have no, like a lot of people, I think, today i have no mechanism with which to play them so i had to buy a cd player back in november because i'm going through these old cds some of them at this point 20 years old or a little bit more and seeing what still plays surprisingly some of them still play and trying to kind of um preserve some of that stuff because some of that stuff is not anywhere 
like some of that stuff was pulled. It's like remixes from, you know, when you were on like Napster and Livewire, you could just find, you know, weird ass remixes and shit like that. And so some of that stuff I'm trying to preserve because you can't find it anywhere else. Not even some of that stuff you can't even really find on YouTube. So it's been a, it's been kind of like a months long project of going through my hundreds and hundreds of burned CDs to try to see like what still functions and what doesn't. I was in college before I bought my first CD and I had gotten, um, you know, I came to college and my roommate had a CD player, which seemed fancy to me. And, uh, but I wanted something to play. And he had, he had a CD player, but not so much music I liked. So I remember buying the Bad Brains Quickness. That was the first CD I oh, bought. Oh, that's a good first CD. <laughs> and yeah, that's and a really it was. Good first CD. And it was, and it sounded cool. You know, it sounded, he had an expensive stereo. He was like, what, which I don't think is as much of a thing anymore, but back, especially in the eighties, he was one of these guys who had like the, the stereo that was like kind of part of his personality, but the music wasn't so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, no, and- I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember those dudes in the early nineties, there was a dude in my neighborhood who was, you know, cause I think that people, particularly in the neighborhood I grew up in, I think that people wanted to kind of mirror Radio Rahim from, mm-hmm do the right thing. But the thing about Radio Rahim is like the music was a big thing with him. It wasn't just the accessory. Right. But you have folks, I, there was a guy who would just carry a boombox to the court, but like no music would be played. It would just be like the boombox <laughs> was like a, a, a an adornment. It was like jewelry. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think we've, for, for better or worse, we seem to have lost that, uh, the some of the audiophile um, thing. Um, how about music like seasons? I've, I've been asking everyone, like, like, do you, are there music... Does music relate to certain seasons to you? Do you have summer records, winter records, or oh, is it all yeah. the same to you? No, goodness no. It's uh it's all extremely different. I I resist this. Like my brain, as all of our brains can be sometimes a mess. I try to resist the the depths of winter and folding into music that makes it harder to endure the depths of winter, but I just think that's what I crave. And a few years ago I was like, I'm just gonna give in to what? Because I think if I were fighting against this, like, I'm going to listen to upbeat music to get me through the sad days of winter. It just wouldn't work anyway. You know, one one big winter album for me is uh, Stars, Set Yourself on Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, I like a good breakup album in the winter. So Richard and Linda Thompson's Shoot Out the Lights is another one. I, I adore that record, deeply adore that record, but it's a big winter one. I'm a, I mean, I, notably, I'm a massive Springsteen guy. And so Springsteen is perhaps the best, artists I can lend my full seasonal menu yeah. to because in the winter, I, I think the river is my winter kind of thing. It, winter is, is Nebraska and the river. Surprisingly, spring is like my darkness of the edge of town era. Uh, I really love darkness in the spring, but I like to kind of f- very quick, brief dalliance with darkness, especially because spring in Columbus now is like three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I, I open up to born to run the born albums, born to run and born in the USA in, in summer. And almost everything else is in fall, even the like new stuff. You know, I think magic is, I I don't know. I was, there's some Springsteen folks who really hate magic. And I get it, the album Magic. I I get it because it's not, you know, it's not like prime. But I I really like magic. I've gone on the record and saying that's the best of the, to me, that's the best of the the recent stuff. Like I I think it's, it's a classic or you know as close to a classic as as he's had for a long long, long time uh comp- in an in a in a catalog that i love almost everything but that one's to me that's a high watermark of the last 15 years do you feel like the hold steady has albums that are like i think i think of separation sunday is a big time fall album for me but do you even have 
can you even fathom your albums aligning with seasons or do you not even think about them that way? Yeah, I mean, and that, that's something I was going to ask you about kind of, but but yes, and I'll tell you, I, release date, because you live through the release date, you know? So yeah. Stay Positive came out roughly the 4th of July. That's a summer yeah. record to me. And, and it, it actually, oh, Constructive Summer's the first song. To me, that's a summer record because I remember being in London and it came out and we did an in-store at Rough Trade and, and then, you know, some of the others. And... uh uh, the touring of course you know like you play the release show and and boys and girls in america came out in october so that's a fall right. record even though that's a very upbeat sort of summary record it came out and i remember uh, playing in october at irving plaza and it was a big show and the twins won the the pennant that day or the the clinch the division and it's yeah so you, yeah. you you attach all these things and i was going to ask you that did your when you look back on your like your own life do you you know i mean when we're in high school we say oh that happened in 11th grade but do you think of years or do you think oh it was around the release of that book etc oh that's a good question i now i think around book releases like for example in 2019 for the first time and definitely the last time i released two books in one year in this in the in february i released the tribe called quest book i released go ahead in the rain and then in october i released my second poetry book fortune for your disaster and that wasn't the plan like the plan was i would really like to release one of these in 2019 in one in 2020 but you know it the the tribe book we just i not we i i took too long to to edit it and i was like having a hard time letting go of it and so i was like well you know february february 2019 it'll give it enough time in both books thankfully did really well but what that meant was i was on the road that year all i did something like 110 readings that year Oof. and i mean and that's a lot for for it that's a lot for like you know i remember talking to a musician friend of mine and she was like you're touring like a band you know like you're you're doing like band numbers and um so i think about 2019 in that way i lived in hotels and i lived and that was a um even if 2020 did not come and shut down the world my whole thing was like i can never do that again never ever ever do that again you know i think about my first book release in, in you know, I kept my first book came out in 2016 and I barely even remember anything in 2016 other than the releasing of that book. And then the making of they can't kill us till they kill us, which I wrote at the end of 2016. And so, yeah, it's all, it's all, you know, it's all book release related, you know, 2017, they can't kill us came out in the fall of 2017. And I remember, I mean, a lot of people don't think about it like this because I think that book has endured in a really beautiful way. And I'm thankful for it. But when that book came out, you know, it's the, the people who put it out, $2 radio, it's like a small press here in Columbus. And we just thought if like 500 people buy this book, that'll be great. You know, like yeah. if a thousand even, that would be really wonderful. And I remember 2017, late in 2017, there was this moment where, uh, I woke up and I was at the gym and I was running and good morning America. I don't really know the morning shows. One of the very big morning is good morning America. Like the biggest morning show type thing. That, that good morning today, America I was think, yeah. And one of the hosts, it was like a, you know, here are the books we're excited about. And one of the hosts held up a copy of they can't kill us till they kill us. And I was on the treadmill and I was like, I'm, am I like hallucinating? You know, it was one of those things where I was like, and I remember calling, I called, I called the publisher after and I was like, I think, we might have to print more copies. I think things are going to be a little different for the book. Because so I remember 2017 as this, a real career turning point for me because I think um, my work was beloved by poets before then, but I think They Can't Kill Us, the emergence of it uh, changed my relationship to the world. And and did that, be, the touring and all that, does that become a blur? Like 
this this thing. Yeah. Unless it's like unless it's a really strange or exciting like once in 2019 I read in this abandoned in Omaha they they like hollowed out this old car wash and turned it into like a punk venue. Mm-hmm. And I read in there and it was it but it still had all the kind of car wash stuff. None of it worked. But it was like there was still the brush over there and there's still like the glowy red hallway. And I read in there and that's like a, one of the most memorable readings I've ever done. But after yeah. a while, yeah, I mean, there are cities I loved reading in more than others, but it's really you know, the hotels all start to feel the same. I'm sure you know this. You know, it's like from 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 city to city you're grateful for it like i was so grateful and i remain grateful um for any city that lets me come and just say some words and all that but the travel aspects of it really become grueling yeah. and and really kind of monochromatic yeah you know i when you're talking about separation sunday I, I that actually came out in the spring and i i remember like we we had this meeting before it came out we were going to bump up from the mercury lounge here to the bowery ballroom for our record release and we met and we all talked about you know it's it's a it's a big room we all have to like invite everyone from our work so it's not embarrassing you know for yeah. how many people yeah. are going to show up and then we were on the cover of the village voice which was the first time a band had been on the cover in a long time and it sold out and it was like and from that moment on it all kind of becomes a blur and one of the memories i do have was actually from that autumn so in some ways it's, it becomes an autumn record to me and it was of being on tour with the constantines and seeing on several days just noticing the headlines on a paper in a newspaper box of hurricane katrina and yeah. and i was moving so fast i wasn't plugging into tv news or anything but i was kind of capturing it just by looking at the headline each day without even reading yeah. the paper and and it was right. and I, I i very much connect that as i know this is important except i'm moving so fast and you know to be honest i was often hung over and and right, just not right. you know trying to get through the day yeah it's it's strange. I don't, there's not much music journalism that does this anymore, which I actually think is a shame. But one of my first big music journalism gigs um, was following a band on tour. And, you know, just like being kind of embedded with the band on tour, a very almost famousy kind of thing. And I, the reason I think, I, I get why that kind of music journalism is not as prominent anymore, but I, I think it should be because you really get, I'm not saying follow a band for an entire leg, but even just like two or three dates, you really get a sense of what the ba- the band is and who the band is. But I remember it because something really fascinating happened on the second day where, you know, after the first day, everyone's feeling each other out, but then you get comfortable. And I remember realizing once I got comfortable with the band, where it was like, oh, they kind of like, this was at the end of a tour too. And I was like, oh, they don't really know where they are anymore. Not even like in a drug induced way. It's just like the the monotony of, even if you love the songs you're playing and you love the album you made and you love being on stage and playing those songs, at the end of a tour, I imagine, it's just like, I I would love to get home. I would love my own bed. And you like it, this band was kind of like very talented and gifted on stage and wonderful on stage. But I remember being like, oh, they're kind of just floating. They're floating from one point to the next. I, I think having a last, a great last show on tour probably does not happen for many bands, you know? Um, yeah. I, that's like, you just finish lines too close. And I think it's, it's you know, I think the reality is people sort of take their eye off the ball, you know? Unless you schedule it at home. I mean, do you, I know some bands do a good job of being like, 
our last show is going to be our hometown show because after it, you know, we're going straight to, I saw this actually last year, I went to Jersey to see the Gaslight Anthem play and it was the end of, you know, it was the end of that leg of tour they were on Mm -hmm. and, you know, they, they were playing at home. And I could tell that, like, Brian and the band were just so excited to be. Because it was like, once the show's over, we don't have to take a long bus ride anywhere. We can just get in our cars and go to our houses. That I mean, that that is that is a good feeling that the sort of hometown guest list situation can get distracting, though, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, 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 <laughs> So yeah, I mean, you know, years ago uh, in 2008, the the Uncut sent someone on tour with the Hold Steady and the Drive By Truckers, and I and he rode for like three days, but one of the days was in Tallahassee, Florida, and somehow we ended up after the show at George Clinton's house, and Whoa. I was eternally thankful that there was a writer <laughs> and a photographer there because he had the mothership in his um like in his house, like the um, literal the literal yes. mothership. Yeah. Whoa. Um, and Whoa. Uh, it was, I mean, it was bizarre and it was so cool. I mean, I remember, you know, the bus drivers on a tour are pretty often pretty skeptical people. And yeah. I remember saying, yeah, like, yeah. we got invited to George Clinton's house after the show. We have to go there. And he was like, yeah, you, pr- you probably do. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I, so. I really crave that. I don't know how much I would even be up for that kind of music journalism anymore at my. <laughs> At, at the place I am, but I, I crave that reading it. I mean, I think, you know, I know it, I know it's like expensive for publications to send writers on, but I think that's really, I would rather read a sprawling profile of a writer who's kind of embedded with a group on tour than I would just kind of like, here's an interview that we did in 30 minutes, you know, that sure. kind of thing. Sure. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, there's something, your last book, which is, as you mentioned earlier, you have another book coming out. So this is old. But I feel like when I think about memory, the, the um, A Little Devil in America does kind of tie into some of the th- thoughts I have. It feels pertinent. But I mean, there is also this thing of like making art on a large, decent sized scale. Um, it sort of does it, do you feel like it always dooms you to talk to reach into kind of the recent past? I mean, book publications yeah. are way up in front, and I mean, this book's already two years old. You were probably writing it four years ago. Do you? Yeah. Do, is there frustration or distraction with that process? Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I mean, you talk to people who work at different mediums. Uh, you talk to, particularly for me, when I talk to musicians, and they're like, "Well, I finished this album. You know, we just put the finishing touches on it two weeks ago. It'll be out in two weeks." You know? <laughs> and, or sometimes even more condensed than that, where it's like we put the finished touches on, it'll be out like two days. And so you have a you build a relationship with it that is more recent sometimes, even though for some folks they're writing records their whole lives, the debut one particularly, you know. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like what I've lived with with the Little Devil of America, like I lived with that book for a long time. And then by the time it came out, I was kind of like, well, I'm I'm done living with it. But I I got lucky with that one because I really loved talking about it and still do. I mean, it's still I've been also lucky that that book has had such a long life. You know, I feel like books don't usually get two years where people are still kind of engaging with it. Yeah, that book got lucky because it like, you know, was up for awards and won some awards and that always extends the life of it. But I also my last the last book before Little Devil was my last poetry book, Fortune Free Disaster, which I did not notoriously I did I did very little press on. I did like one big interview with the ringer, but I didn't want to talk about it. You know, it was a book about like my marriage falling apart at the time and it was just like a hard book to articulate what brought me to it and getting through it was very difficult. 
And I wanted to have a relationship with Little Devil that was different than that. Like, I didn't want to be as um, publicly combative about this book that I that I love. I mean, I love I love a Fortune for Disaster too, but I didn't want to be like combative. I didn't want to be challenging. I wanted to kind of tell people like I had a great time writing this book and I loved it. And I learned how to write a book joyfully through the writing of this book. And so those kind of things, my relationship with my own work and how I talk about it has to evolve because I think by default, by nature, like left to my own devices, I wouldn't talk to anyone. I would just put out the book and say, well, the book does the work. And for the first time with Little Devil, it was like, oh, this can be fun. This can be exciting to talk about. You know, the process points, the uh, all of that stuff can be joyful. You know, I, I, I learned, I had to like teach myself that. I have this archive. Do you know Rock's Back Pages? The the website Rock's Back Pages, which yes, is like a yes. massive archive of every interview ever given. Yeah. So I I subscribe to it. Would encourage anyone listening to subscribe to it because it's just like a massive wealth of information and knowledge. And I went back and I read a bunch of interviews from people who made albums that I loved that I knew they loved making. You know, just to kind of figure out how you can talk about art that you made that you're excited about. I, I had no landscape for it. I had no, like I had no blueprint for how to do that. And so I would go back, you know, Bruce was one because, you know, his albums are rigorous, but one like say Born to Run, he's vocal about how fun it was at points. And so I wanted to like tap into whatever got people excited about what they were doing. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases, you can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Yeah, I, I mean, we just put out a record last week, and it, 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 it was recorded in 2021 for the most part, you know, but vinyl yeah. manufacturing now takes so long, so it kind of pushes, it's like, I know pop, you know, pop artists can oftentimes release stuff quickly but i feel like in rock we've actually gone further back you know yeah and i think the vinyl thing is going to be a problem for a long time <laughs> a really long time and i don't know uh i don't know i don't know how folks are going to manage it can i i didn't want to i okay my thought coming in this was like i'm not going to bring it up if if, if you don't because i don't know how how good you feel about talking about it but how do you feel about the record I'm really excited about it. I'm really, yeah. and I'm, I'm excited to have it out there, but it's cool. I mean, I, 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 a couple things. One is that um, we're 20 years old and we're all still friends. So I think that, yeah. you know, that's something that's, that a band doesn't have. Um, m many bands, you know, I was talking right. to Alejandro Escovedo on this and he was like, oh, that never happened in my band. And I'm, I'm excited to be making music. I'm proud of with these guys 20 years in. And I, I think it's like, strangely, our most au courant record um, yeah. in that it really deals with some of the technology and communication, you know, uh, sort of the late stage capitalism that we're all living through. And I, I kind of like that because I think some of the other records may have been more, t like really kind of 
thought more, I thought more timeless, but maybe weren't as plugged into the actual moment that this one is. And I think that's cool. I thought it, this isn't, you know, me just shouting an album review at you, but, <laughs> but I, I musically it's great, but also like thematically, I was so moved by um, an album that is kind of unabashedly about a, a, an adulthood that doesn't necessarily require direction. You know, like I love that there's in a lot of, in the songs, there's like not a lot of um, reconciliation of feelings of desperation or anguish. And I, I think, I don't know, like I, I really crave that in, in music from bands who have been around a long time or bands who have grown, like who I've watched grow up through their songs, particularly the no reconciliation part, because I think the older you get, the more you realize like sometimes there is just anguish and there's no way to reconcile it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just sort of that, uh, staring off into the distance yeah you know that well this is this is it i guess right i mean sometimes that's what i just feel well this is it yeah i really i was listening to it with a friend and they also loved it and they were like this <laughs> their quote was this makes me feel equal parts good about being an adult and bad about being an adult and i was like it makes me feel great about being an adult <laughs> you know, it makes me feel like i it does it, it it allows for me to stare off into that middle distance and be like okay, but I've made it this far, which I think that's perhaps where the reconciliation is. There's a gratitude in the songs too, I think, of having made it far enough to be able to stare into that middle distance. Well, I think it's when you're talking to your friends and your peers about staring off into the middle distance together that there's some connection, say like, we need to do that sometimes. And that is where we're at, maybe. And that's there's there's always a power in that. There's a power in, that's like a power in very sad songs is acknowledging Absolutely. that we all suffer, you know? So- there, there's a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you about because you, in, in the, A Little Devil, really early on, you mentioned uh, MTV coming into your house. And I'm wondering, <laughs> for me, that was like massive. Um, yeah. I'm 12 years older than you. So I was like, uh, it was like, and also I grew up in a suburb, so I, I didn't have much to see outside. So it was very much a window to me. Is that how you experienced MTV? When, or or is it, was it stuff you already knew, but you just got to spend more time with it? Oh no, it was it was like a, a wild world for me because as I got a little older, we never had cable, but we did when I was young enough for MTV to come into the house. And my parents would let me stay up late with my oldest brother, who's about 10 years older than me. And he would watch, it was back when they would show UMTV Raps and Headbangers Ball back to back. Mm -hmm. And we would just stay up and watch both UMTV Raps and Headbangers Ball. And I it was like mind blowing to me. I remember one of the first videos that I remember seeing was Inter Sandman, the Metallica video, because at at that point, like Headbangers Ball was playing that all the time, and I just remember that truck. Like I I I, vi I can still visualize that video, even though my relationship with that song is like lukewarm at best. You know, I like I like some Metallica stuff. That's not one of my favorite tunes, but that video, I remember. I you know like, and at the time that I came in MTV, music videos had existed for some years. You know like. The music video as a form had already existed and perhaps even gone through like one evolution. But for me, as someone who had only ever heard music before, as like a nine-year-old or 10-year-old, like seeing music videos was mind-blowing. I, I had the same thing. I mean, I, I I was, when I came up, like radio was Sticks and Journey and stuff like that. Yeah. So all of a sudden to see Madness and Duran Duran and all these British bands I've never heard of was was literally life-changing and, and actually made me seek out stuff. Um, Can I ask a question really quick about, yeah. about Journey? Do you like the song Don't Stop Believing? Are you a fan of that song? Medium. Uh, I, I would say if you asked me 10 years ago, I was yeah. like more so. 
And I do think that, uh, I mean, I liked some schmaltz, you know, I'm, I'm a Billy Joel yeah. guy. I, I like, I like that stuff. And I, overall I like journey, but like, that's one I've heard, um, maybe more than enough in the past 10. Was it the Sopranos that did it? <laughs> yes. Some, someone brought yeah. it and I don't know. What's your feeling on it? I love it. I, I asked because any, not any musician I talk to, but if, a, if journey comes up and I'm talking to musicians, I'm always like, do you love don't, I, I think it's one of the best pop songs ever written, like hands down, but I am very alone on that. That's like, like, that's an Island that I am firmly alone on. I have yet to encounter anyone who shares my enthusiasm. Most people are kind of like you, but they're like, you know, it's it's fine. <laughs> it's I mean it's really good and and like it, it would have been one in my, when I was twenty three I would have been like guys no it's good, but like <laughs> yeah. at fifty one I'm like man I've had a lot of don't stop believing in my life yeah. you know it's like yeah. too much of the same meal yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um so did you, uh, there was this other part of the book that fascinated me and it was about when you're in high school I think with dancing uh, in the school and yeah. there's that Tom Wolf piece the Noonday Underground have you read yep. that about oh yeah uh, people dancing on their lunch break and sort of swinging 60s London and I was thinking like how cool it is to be like take like sort of the nighttime the pickup thing the the um you know the alcohol the adulthood out of a dancing thing and putting in a different time of day it's i mean in some ways it's like a hardcore matinee um but it's moving your body and 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 um, but you also say in your poem, like "Welcome to Heartbreak," it's it's the uh, the version of me fading in photos that I most wish to dance with. And I'm wondering, what can you talk to me about that period and how long did that last? And and like, when what time of day was this while you were dancing so, in school? Well, this is so wild because when I wrote that piece, or when I wrote the the bit about the high school sock hop dance situation, I assumed even then, even like a few years ago i assume that like everyone had this experience at least in columbus city schools because so one thing that's funny is that our lunch period was like 11 30 and so we were just like sweating and dancing at 11 30 but the whole reason that this came about is because at my school kids would leave for lunch and then never come back like they would leave for lunch and then skip the rest of the day and so the school's logic was well the the one thing that we can do is make something so enticing that it'll keep people here. You know, what can we do to build like a really enticing thing? And so they moved all the bleachers, pulled all the bleachers up in the auditorium, surprisingly turned all the lights out. So it was just like dark space and would let a student DJ essentially, uh, not with records or whatever, but just like bring in a boom, you know what I mean? And people would just dance for like an hour. It's like a dance party, 45 minutes or whatever. And eventually, and it worked. It's wild because the shit worked. Like, if enough people stayed, then you don't want to be the one person leaving or the few people leaving because that's where all the cool kids are. And I just assumed because there was this kind of truancy problem permeating Columbus City schools at that time, I assumed that everyone was doing this at, at the schools in the area. But I was, I gave a talk at, um, like, I gave a talk when the book got released out here, like a big talk. And people who were my age and who went to neighboring high schools were like, we never did that. But then the people who were at my high school knew who were like, that was, that shit was wild. And so it's weird how even in a, in a singular city, in a single city, there are universes within that city that are like a city unto themselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like the city of Beechroft high school is different than the city of Northland high school, just two miles down the road. That is maybe the most fascinating part of that piece of that, of the book is, um, you know, it's it is wild that at eleven o'clock, 
or 11.30, teenagers are dancing and grinding on each other in a school auditorium and then having to go back to class afterwards. But it's also kind of fascinating. You know, I, I visit my old high school now a couple times a year, and it's like a lot of high schools in America now. It's high security and a lot of surveillance and all these things. And it's just fascinating to think back to when I was in high school, teachers, like there were no chaperones in there. Like there was a teacher outside the door maybe in case someone passed out or got hurt. But it's wild that a teacher turned out the lights in the auditorium and said, you're on your own and just kind of trusted us. And, and uh, that trust yielded results. I mean, there was no, no one was impregnated or otherwise harmed in the time in, in people, you know, it was one of those things where it was only for juniors and seniors. You know, if you were like, suspended or whatever you couldn't come through but it was cool it was it was the first time i felt kind of like freedom in that way yeah you know i, I throughout the book you, you you draw on these cultural events like in you know, the soul train the tv show whitney houston on the soul train awards michael jackson on the grammys um space shuttle columbia in 2003 etc some of these you experienced live i'm sure some were probably like vhs or youtube but yeah i imagine when you went back and watched some of the stuff when you're writing the book it was i wonder if there's anything that you like when you put it under scrutiny or revisited as an older person, did anything surprise you? Like, yeah, well, revisits always surprise me because nothing, I think it's a real gift if nothing ages well or a few things age well. I think that's a reflection of how we evolve, right? And, you know, one thing that that really surprised me in terms of what I remember versus what it was. I, in the Magical Negroes piece, I write about Dipset in like Jewel Santana and Cameron, Jim Jones. And there was a real era for black kids, particularly where Dipset was just like a, you know, people were wearing like baggy American flag regalia and the, the eagle and all that. And I, in my head, that era was larger than life, like expansive, many years. And doing so, and I remember being like, all the songs were good. And I remember going back when I was writing that piece and digging into that era and digging into the songs. I was like, well, these songs aren't as good as I remember them, you know. <laughs> like, I, and I, I understand why they were good at the time, and some of them still certainly were. And that era was also shorter than I recall it. That era felt very expansive and long, culturally, but it actually wasn't. You know, it was like a couple of years, maybe a year and a half. Mm -hmm. So that there were there were things like that all through the book, you know. There was a lot of stuff when I was writing the Wu-Tang piece where I was kind of like digging back through their catalog and thought, well, that doesn't hold up the same. Still love it, but that doesn't hold up the same. I think I think one thing I'd have to do because I write so much about things that have happened in the past, music specifically, I have to kind of detach myself from this idea of needing something to hold up in the same way and to offer myself some grace and say, well, I still love it. Like, I I still love that thing because it, it served me at the moment. It served me, even if now I've got nothing for it, you know, because that's just kind of the way it is. That's like, that's the way it has to be yeah. if we are to evolve at all. If we are to evolve our own thinking around the world or the things that excite us or even just not even like sociopolitically, just evolve our sonic palette, you know, all of those things play into why something might not age well. But that doesn't mean that we have to detach ourselves from the past version of ourselves that really loved it right on yeah yeah i mean there, there's certainly there's this actually great piece in in one of rob sheffield's books where he talks about that song wiggle it yeah and, yeah and yeah. he was like i know, know that if, piece it, yeah if you were from charlottesville or you know i think he lived in charlottesville at the time he's like yep. if you were there you thought this was the biggest song of the year 
Um, if you yep. listen to this one radio station, I remember thinking that song was huge too. Once he brought it up, and then I was like, "No, half the people don't know that song. Don't even know that song at all." It's <laughs> so much of this is is like geographical memory, you know? Like, gosh, I, there are. I remember when I first went to a show for the band Defiance Ohio, who I, I still love that band, and they're, they're you know like they kind of came up through Columbus, and they were so big here. There was a stretch where they were like really big here. I mean, like as for a Columbus band, you know, like they were playing 300 to 500 cap rooms because that's what we had. And I remember being like, this is like one of the biggest bands in the Midwest. And then I would even go just up to Detroit and be like, you guys heard Defiance Ohio? And they're like, not, not really. You know, you heard this like folk punk band from central, (laughs) central Ohio. And they're like, well, no. And and so, so much of our relationship to that stuff is regional memory based. And it's also, I'm also someone who, through my experiences, because I was coming up and going to shows in the early 2000s in the Midwest when the, the punk hardcore emo revival, like at the at that version of it at least, mm-hmm. or whatever era emo punk you want to call that, which means that I saw a lot of bands bef- like right before they got very big. And the one that, of course, comes to mind is Fall Out Boy, but also like Rise Against and also mm-hmm. like, you know, all those bands that kind of came out of that midwest scene and ended up on mtv i was seeing them when they were playing to no one in like skate parks and ymcas and that's also kind of a surreal experience it's a surreal experience to to say wait a minute i mean in the case of a band like fallout boy for example to kind of be like wait a minute i just saw those dudes <laughs> play like a knights of columbus and now they're on mtv it was just bizarre you know and so that's that's how I think memory can be warped by time and place more than anything. Well, and the years collapse too. I mean, uh, yeah. two years when you're younger is a long time. And, and at my age, it's not long at all. So you say, wow, two years ago, I saw you in a basement. But you right. know, t- those right. two years were very eventful for those four people in that band. And that's how it goes. I mean, you know this, and I think anyone who's created something that you know, for a while, a few people were paying attention to, and then very quickly, a lot more people started paying attention to. <laughs> it, it happens uh, suddenly for you. You know, I mean, maybe not sudden, but like it, it's a it's a small collection of sudden moments, and then a large sudden moment. You know, yeah. um, and it it does happen. I mean, a lot happens in a small amount of time for a lot of folks. You know, of course, there are some bands and whatnot who who come up in these increments, but for a lot of those bands in particular, it was like. We're playing in a basement one month, and then the next month we're signing a major label deal. Yeah, yeah, and and it, yeah, I mean, it, it, these things happen in in months. So much of the book is written as like kind of a of, of the the last book is written as a tribute or testimonial. You know, this one goes out to and the chapter yeah. about Aretha Franklin. You say something particularly beautiful, which is our grief decides when it's done with us. I, when I started this podcast, I was thinking a lot about memory in the sense of how we remember people that are no longer with us. And the book you speak about losing your mother. My own mother mm-hmm. passed away 10 years ago this week. And um, oh, you and I both knew Scott Hutchison from Fright and Rabbit. We've spoken about yeah. that on Object of Sound. Um, is part of writing about anything, whether it's artists, friends, hometowns, or is part of that erecting monuments to these people and places so they're not forgotten? Um, or, or to make yeah. sure, sure you show them love and appreciation before it's too late. You have this get your roses while you're still alive. Yeah. It's a, it's an intersection of that. There's an urgency to honor the living while simultaneously perhaps building monuments to the departed. I, um, there's a show on Apple plus called shrinking that I mm-hmm. really loved watching. 
and I watched the last episode this past week and there's a moment, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but um, there's a moment where the daughter of the main character, you know, he's lost his wife, she lost her mother. There's a moment where the daughter says, I can't remember, I can't remember mom's laugh anymore. And that was really impactful for me because, and I don't know if this happened to you, like I lost my mom when I was 13, but for a long time, I had this kind of sonic map of her in my head. I remembered the sound of her voice and I remember her laugh. And about four years ago, I realized I just did not remember the sound of her voice anymore. And it was like immensely devastating for me. It was kind of like grieving again. It was like grieving a loss again. And there's a way I think that, I am required to believe that grief is not done with me because I want to keep returning to it in my work as a way of admitting it and as a way of saying through that admittance saying um, these people I love and have lost get to remain in, in the world in some way and to get to um, also, I think it's important that we, simplify our mythologies in a way and simplify you know when we did the we did the scott hutchinson episode for object sound frank turner said this thing that i just loved where um he very simply was like yeah you know if you listen to frightened rabbit songs or if you read any frightened rabbit lyrics scott was exactly who you thought he was you know like he was just like he's he's that guy like all of that was there and i think that's a real wonderful legacy you know like i i like to think that anyone my mother was a very, like a lot of people, was a very broad and complex and full person. But everyone she encountered, I think, really got the the essence of who she was as fully. She gave so much of herself fully to every interaction she had. That's the way to live. I mean, that's that's the legacy that I think is useful. Is um, and so I want to I want to funnel that into my work as much as I want to say this living person who I adore who perhaps has not gotten what I believe they deserve. Uh, I want to write beautifully about what they've done. You know, my first, I signed on to write for the New Yorker. Um, I'm writing for, I'm contributing writer for every year. And the first piece I wrote was this piece about this album called Black Music. Do you know this album by Chocolate Genius? No, I don't know that record. It's a, it's a record that came out 25 years ago. And it's, a, I think it's a classic, but a lot of people just don't know it. And it was one of those things where I was like, I, I want to write, I want to force people, if because people, I, I, I'm aware that people read The New Yorker. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, I want to put people in a position where they have to engage with this thing I love if they're interested, or at least give them the option to engage with this thing I love. That's also some of what my writing process is, is how can I put people in a position to at least have the option to say, if this person loves this thing, this fluorescently, Maybe I'm going to try it. Maybe I want to get next to it. And, and on the way, you might not love the thing as much as I love it, but you might find something else that you love just as much. And I think that's that's good, too. I was thinking about that, it, you know, in, in, in regarding to writing about culture. You know, Chris Gow's column in The Voice, I believe, was called The Consumer's Guide. And yeah, it sort of reflected yeah. the idea of what to buy. And now with, you know, Spotify, YouTube, et cetera, we're, av- we're able to explore. We're able to try things a little easier without the sort of uh, financial barrier. Does it free you up writing about things, do you feel like? Yeah, well, because I don't have to, I've never been the kind of critic, never been good at being the kind of critic who's like, you need to go out and I'm not a, you know, I don't, I don't give directives and I'm not really prescriptive. And so I've never been a like, you need to go out and buy this, you need to go out and see this. I've been more like, 
I had this incredible experience and I would love to share what that experience was like. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, maybe you will be moved to also attempt to experience this. For example, and they can't kill us when I wrote about going to the Carly Rae Jepsen shows. I, I went to that first Carly Rae Jepsen show as like a skeptic. I didn't love the record. And then I left the show adoring that record emotion. And so what choice do I have other than to say, I went to see this show and it actually changed, it rewired my brain about what this music was. And you might have that experience too, or you might not. But in doing so, you might hear something that moves you. You might see something that moves you. I still think, you know, I don't go to as many shows as I used to because I've been to like 100,000 shows in my life. And so I've <laughs> seen a lot. But I still think witnessing live music is the thing that pull, that sends me sprinting to write more than anything else. Because I want to almost evangelize, to so like deliver the good word of, of what I've seen. I think... Any act of witnessing, if it moves you, perhaps deserves the evangelical voice. Um, And so much of my writing is that I've never been the kind of writer who's like, you need to go out and buy this. I I don't know if I believe as much in that kind of exchange. Some of that is because of the era I came up in doing criticism. I didn't really come up doing criticism in the CD era or even that, you know, and so criticism was never a vessel for me. And I'm somewhat from the Lester Bangs school of criticism where it's like, I've witnessed the thing and I'm going to tell you about the thing. I'm a, I'm a little bit less acerbic than Bangs and probably a little bit less cynical, but I'm still from that school of I, I've got the good word and I want to share it with you. And then whatever you do with it is up to you, but you've got it now. Amazing. Well, thanks for sharing the good word with us. No doubt. Thank you. All right. Hanif brought the good word indeed, or the good words. That was really great. I appreciate him joining us. I really look forward to the next book and whatever comes next. And I recommend reading any and all of his work if you haven't already. It's entertaining and rewarding. I appreciate you joining us too. Couldn't have even done it if it wasn't for you. I hope I'll see some of you at the upcoming Hold Steady shows in Portland, Oregon, or Boston, or Austin, Texas. Or maybe at the Sing Us Home Festival in Philadelphia on May 5th. I'll be doing a songwriter's round there with Dave Hawes and Kathleen Edwards. Cinco de Mayo, can't miss. Let's hang. We've got some cool stuff coming up here as well, so keep tuning in. Listen and subscribe to That's How I Remember It. Stay positive.